I want you to imagine something with me. It's really my imagination, but I kind of want to bring you in into it. Next week, you get a phone call from Amazon's vice president of public relations. And she says she has a special gift for you. It seems your last order was the 25 millionth since they started in 1994, and they have a very special prize for you, an all-expense-paid year-long trip around the world or wherever you want to go. <clears throat> she says Amazon is the fifth largest, fifth richest com um, company in the world. They've got a market cap of $1.6 trillion. They spend $9 billion a year on advertising. They can afford this, no matter what it costs. Your trip starts in a year. You'll have two Boeing 777X brand new wide body aircraft with an 8,700 mile range, which means you could fly from Dallas to Sydney, Dallas to Dubai. You could go to London and back without even refueling. One plane will carry you and up to 10 others of your choosing in a specially designed apartment layout 3,500 square feet per plane, well-appointed rooms, multiple bedrooms, theater. The other plane will house your trip staff, drivers, chefs, medical personnel, nannies, event planners. Everyone that goes on the trip, Amazon will pay for whatever their salary was when they took a year of leave from their company. You have a one-of-a-kind Amazon credit card, no limit, accepted everywhere. You can go anywhere you want whenever you want, do anything you want, at least anything that money can buy. <clears throat> Each Sunday you can worship with a different congregation around the world. You can eat at any restaurant, and your event planner will arrange for you to dine with a variety of famous and important guests at your request. You could eat at the French Laundry in Napa, Noma in Copenhagen, Mirazur on the south coast of France, you can stay at the Four Seasons and ski at Whistler, 2024 Olympics in Paris, London Fashion Week, watch Hamilton in New York because you can guarantee to get tickets, New Year's Eve in Sydney. Your sons can learn how to play soccer from Leo Messi or learn how to throw a slider from Clayton Kershaw. Your daughters, piano lessons from Yuja Wang in New York or cooking lessons from P. Leone in Peru, whatever you want. Or you can just relax, go to Santorini, Greece, and just spend a couple weeks on that beautiful white villa hillside or 85-foot yacht in the Mediterranean. I expect you'd think about such a trip almost every day. I would, totally I would. The mere anticipation of it would brighten most of your days. So why don't we think about our upcoming heaven <clears throat> that often? Some of us rarely think about it. How, how do we explain it? How can that be? And I think there might be a clue in Christ's eight words to that thief. First, I want to talk about who this person was to whom Christ spoke. I grew up Catholic, and we were taught to call him the good thief. Luke calls him a criminal, Matthew and Mark call both of them robbers, and Matthew and Mark both say that both those thieves and robbers were reviling Christ earlier in the day. But evidently, something happened to that one thief. 
in the few hours between his early morning mocking and his late morning confession. Luke doesn't tell us what it was. Might have been Christ saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't know. But we do know ultimately it was God's grace. His effectual calling described in these beautiful words of the Westminster Confession. God had predestined him for life and was pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call him, taking away his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh, renewing his will, and by his almighty power, effectually drawing him to Christ. The thief utters a brief and simple request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ answers, eight words packed with power and hope and promise, probably entirely unexpected by this thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So what do we know and how do we feel about that preposition with Christ? A passage from Revelation talks about, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. Paul told the Corinthians We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. A year later, he told the Philippians pretty much the same thing. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Heaven is heaven because of the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit and the close fellowship. But for many of us, that preposition is weak. Our desire to be with Christ is too weak. Sometimes I'll read the letters of uh, 17th century Puritan Samuel Rutherford, and I feel so puny, and I can't imagine my love and desire to be with Christ to be anywhere close to his. And I felt the same way listening to a Scottish professor, Sinclair Ferguson, pray before seminary class in Orlando. Um, Don't remember that much about the class, but I remember his prayers. They were from another place. We need to cultivate and percolate that preposition, with Christ. The normal means of grace are meant to help that. Worship, preaching, scripture reading, prayer, and the sacraments. The promise that he loves my children and my children's children makes me want to be with him. The promise that I have a welcome seat at his table makes me long to be with him. It dawned on me, Jesus could have redeemed that thief without saying a word to him. Could have just thought it or whatever. Jesus was undoubtedly in horrible pain and undoubtedly difficult to breathe. Yet he loved that man so much that he spoke un immeasurable comfort to him as he was dying. Who wouldn't want to long to be with a Savior like that? We need to strengthen our yearning to be with him, and there's lots of ways to do it. A couple years ago, I spent a few retreat days in the central mountains of uh, Idaho and read a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by uh, Dane Ortland, a PCA minister in Chicago, and it increased my love for Christ. 
and my longing to be with him. It kind of reoxygenated my blood. Lots of books can do that, different ways for different people. Uh, I listened over and over again to wonderful songs like uh, Brooke Ligertwood's What a Beautiful Name and a group called Future of Forestry's Christmas song, What Beauty, over and over again. And Hillsong worships, He Will Reign Forever. It helped. So we need to work on strengthening the preposition, but what about the noun? What about paradise? What will it be like in heaven? I've had some people tell me, don't even think, don't even, it's not right to think about what it might be. But uh, I like to quote an old Charlie Peacock song that says, I want to live like heaven is a real place. So I want to imagine. The English word heaven appears almost 700 times in the English Standard Version and translation of the Bible, but the word paradise appears three, all in the New Testament. Here in Luke, near the end of 2 Corinthians and the second chapter of Revelation. To the Corinthians, Paul writes this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. He heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. I don't take that to mean it was top secret classified and that's why he couldn't do it. He didn't have words to explain what he saw. John wrote in Revelations 1, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Scripture talks about heaven with many images. Some are strange. Ezekiel talks about wheels within wheels and eyes on the wheels. And... But Scripture also talks about things that are tangible, a city, mansions, rest, reunion. Throughout history, even the most gifted artists and writers have strained to present an image. And Dante, Dante wrote after the Divine Comedy, it was much easier for him to describe hell than it was to describe heaven. Regardless of how difficult it might be, we need to cultivate that now. And we need to not be afraid to do so. We might follow the advice of 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter and practice what he called the soul-ravishing exercise of heavenly contemplation. I think he means this, perhaps. When you hear, see, smell, taste, or feel something on this side of the Jordan, say, ah, this is wonderful. This laughter of a toddler, performance of Handel's Messiah, sunrise in a Grand Canyon, smell of a lilac, taste of a Krispy Kreme donut or a Copper River salmon or a fresh peach. Likewise, when the opposite thing happens, feel free to say to yourself, ah, this is miserable, but it won't be so there. This inconvenience, disappointment, misunderstanding, mortgage, dishonesty, crime, abuse, injustice, physical pain, relational pain, cancer, and try to remember that even greater misery that so many other people in our world suffer today, Ukraine, etc. <clears throat> I don't know any of you, but I think I can confidently predict that if you're one of God's children, the moment immediately after your death will without a doubt 
be the happiest moment of your entire existence so far. Paul tells the Corinthians, and so he tells us, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he's quoting Hosea here, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I often tell my wife and kids that I'm tempted to get DNR tattooed on my chest, do not resuscitate, so doctors don't make a mistake of thinking I prefer this life to the next. <laughs> Winston Churchill gave instructions that at his funeral they were to play reveille and not taps, signaling the beginning instead of signaling the end. Just imagine what the Creator must have in store for us in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the Creator who hundreds and hundreds of years ago put a fish called a snailfish 26,000 feet deep in the Mariana Trench in the South Pacific who went unseen for hundreds and hundreds of years by anybody except the Creator. Psalm 147 that we read earlier, David says that God determines the number of the stars. I don't know how many stars David thought were up there, but our sun is one star in the Milky Way galaxy that has 100 billion stars. And the Milky Way galaxy is one of two trillion galaxies in the universe. So that's 200 billion trillion stars. Aquinas thought we'd all be 33 years old in heaven because that was the Christ age at death. I've always thought that we'd all be five years old because that was the greatest age of all my kids. They were all just amazing human beings at age five. <laughs> C.S. Lewis imagined we'd be ageless, whatever, whatever that means. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each reported that Christ told the Sadducees, in the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. To be honest, I'm not really thrilled with that idea. Um... I've had a wonderful bride for almost 40 years, but I'm not certain what, what to make of it either. Those of you my age probably remember the movie Chariots of Fire. It was Best Picture Academy Award, 1981. Uh, in it, the British Olympian and missionary to China, Eric Little, says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. And I think in heaven he might still feel God's pleasure when he runs. At the conclusion of the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis writes something that many of you have already read, and it goes like this. The school year is over. The holidays are here. The dream has ended. This is morning. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one has ever read, which goes on forever and which each chapter is better than the other. Better than the one before. We can use the Lord's Day sometimes to remind us of heaven, arrange it in a certain way. When our kids were little, I think Debbie and I had little Sunday-only toy boxes for them to help them value the day and uh, maybe save the best desserts for Sunday. We used to save our best meals for Sunday, our favorite books, favorite wine, fellowship with brothers and sisters, and um, 
I'm struggling now to try to remember to leave this on the shelf on Sundays. It's hard, but I'm having reasonable success. (laughs) I'm reasonably sure the Apostle Paul, even in his wildest dreams, even if he tried to imagine the future, had no idea and couldn't imagine cameras and cell phones and airplanes and air conditioning and anesthesia and robotic surgery. and um, He couldn't even imagine that. So imagine that we can't even imagine what's so wonderful in heaven. The most wonderful thing we can think of is better than that. So it's hard to imagine what the new earth and the new heavens might have. But it's easy to remember what will not be there. No pandemics, no wars, no tears, no sorrow, no sickness, no hunger, no injustice, no racial strife, no disputing, no misunderstanding, no conflict, no temptation, no sin, no confession. Even if it isn't wonderful in the other sense, that alone makes heaven so greatly to be desired. Whatever it's like to be redeemed soul in heaven and whatever it's like to be a redeemed soul rejoined to an immortal body, it's far, far better and eternally better than any Amazon trip you can imagine. I realize many of you don't need much encouragement to cultivate a yearning for heaven. If you're like people in my church, some of you are in almost constant pain. Physical, familial, financial, emotional, relational, My bride has struggled with pain for years. Five C-sections, hysterectomy, appendix out, two knee surgeries, three ankle surgeries. Uh, She has a physical pain that I've never experienced. Some of you are exhausted in your work, your relationships, this life in general. Haven't really turned out as, as you'd hoped. You've been yearning for the next life for many years and yearning deeply. But I'll wager... I guess that most of us in this room this morning have far more comforts than the vast majority of Christians in the world today and certainly throughout history. So for those of us who are relatively comfortable, relatively healthy and content, we need to try even harder to increase our longing for something much, much better. C.S. Lewis warned, don't make the mistake of thinking that a pleasant inn along the journey is your real home. A sanctified discontent with this life and even with its blessings is not dishonoring to God. But if we, even if we do all this well and cultivate the preposition and imagine the noun, we may still have a problem. <clears throat> I was an airline pilot for 35 years and one night I was flying my normal route from Tel Aviv to Philadelphia and over the southern tip of Greenland, I was looking at the northern lights, thinking about these eight words from Jesus to the thief, and about how infrequently and inadequately I thought about heaven. I was perplexed, because I imagined paradise to be an extraordinary place, and eternity to be an unbelievable thing. And as weak as my love for Christ may be, I do long for the day I'll be with him, when my love for him will be as his love is for me now. So why didn't I think about it more? Why wasn't I affected more? And it dawned on me. It's the adverb, 
I didn't really think I could be in heaven today or soon. We imagine that date is far off over the horizon, but relatively speaking, it's just around the corner. Moses prays in Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they're soon gone. So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. In uh, his New Testament letter, James, the brother of Jesus, says, what is your life? You're a mist. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What's a year anyway or a decade or 40 years in light of eternity? I mean, it's a, not even a drop of water in an ocean. Um, if you can convince yourself that you might be in heaven soon, it might have a wonderful effect. Um, we sang this morning, Jesus is coming soon. Um, I've struggled all my life to believe that because he hasn't come yet. Um, it's hard for me to believe that. Uh, I pray for it, but it's hard for me to believe that. But I can believe I'm going to him soon. Uh, think of the young soldier returning tomorrow from a lengthy overseas deployment. Hasn't seen his wife and kids, hasn't held them for a year. Nothing bothers him today. I remember when it was like being a little child on Christmas Eve. Greatest night of the year for me. Nothing could bother me. Everything paled in comparison to what was coming. Many of us are living on the Christmas Eve of eternal bliss, but acting like it's March 1st. Heaven and our very soon residence there is simply not on our radar, so we need to recalibrate our radar. There's lots of ways to do that, but one important way is to simply recognize your mortality. Not just theoretically, though, but practically and even mathematically. I'm 67, and the Social Security tables say I'm going to live another 18 years. So based on that, I'll probably depart this life when my oldest grandchild turns 21. And even if, it's, even if I'm an outlier and I'm here another 36 years, that's just 36 years and then eternal bliss. And I also know statistically in the U.S., 42 men my age will die tomorrow, uh, this week. 42 67-year-old men will die in America this next week. And 40 children under age 14 will die in car accidents alone. And 100 children between 15 and 19 will die in car accidents alone. We're uncomfortable thinking about our deaths. Many of us are uncomfortable. Because death is a horrible thing. Um... My wife is a retired nurse. She worked adult hospice and pediatric hospice. Death is a horrible thing. And we're uncomfortable thinking about it. 80% of millennials, 18 to 34, don't have a will. 80%. Uh, 60% of Americans between 35 and 54 don't have a will. We need to cultivate that adverb. We we can do that by simply reminding ourselves and others that not only are we going to heaven, but we're going there soon. Um, design a screensaver, put a post-it note on your bathroom mirror. Every time your Apple Watch says breathe, breathe in the air of heaven. Write your funeral service, buy your casket, 
It's a custom with Trappist monks to always keep an empty grave, open grave, so that when the next monk dies, he goes in there and they dig another one, waiting for the next one. Um, there's a book called Setting Our Sights on Heaven by a PCA minister in Northern Virginia, Paul Wolf, suggests that occasionally, and this has had an effect on me just in the last couple of years, occasionally, when you get in your car, remind yourself how dangerous driving can be. And therefore, how it's, there's a possibility you could go to heaven during that drive. I've done that several times, and it makes me a better driver, is, but it also brings the reality home. Um, when we're discussing this passage about the good thief, we'd be remiss to ignore the other thief. We weren't taught that much about the other thief growing up. He probably heard the exchange between his fellow thief and Jesus. What, uh, what did he make of it? Why didn't he also ask to be remembered in the kingdom? I mean, Jesus replied pretty quickly to the other guy. Why didn't he ask? While Jesus' promise of paradise for the repentant is magnificent news, it's hellish news for those who reject Christ. And as difficult as it is for me to think about hell and for us to think about hell, our Reformed theological tradition understands the Bible to teach that it's occupied for eternity. But here, Luke provides great hope. I've often wondered if any of Luke's friends suggested that he not repeat the story between the thief and Christ. Luke, if you report it this way, it could make redemption look too easy. People might twist it and make salvation look simple and obedience seem unnecessary. Fortunately, Luke tells us that it, in at least this one instance, a profoundly simple confession and very simple faith from a profoundly guilty person who had reviled Christ just hours before, elicited Christ's promise of eternal paradise. In John 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I've been told the Greek in that sentence is apparently a kind of extra negative. Something like, I will most certainly never, ever cast out. Well, let me close with, a, with an observation and a story. Despite all I've said so far, your time being short on this planet is not entirely good news. There are many very important things that you will never again, never again, be able to do. Resist temptation, help the poor, tell people about Jesus, fight injustice, comfort the weary, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the prisoner, guard your tongue, love your enemies, share your money, and repent. Never again will you be able to do that in eternity. And after you die... You will lose the opportunity to honor and glorify and love the Lord as a fallen creature. No more opportunity to wrestle with your humanness, to mortify your sin, to resist temptation, to demonstrate your faith, to say with Job and to say to Satan, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though he slay me, I will hope in him. 1973, before our final Pennsylvania high school wrestling match, 
Our coach, George Lampernakis, asked us how we wanted to finish. Did we want to merely win or did we want to give it everything we had? We had a good team. We knew we could probably win with a 70% effort. He said, uh, and we also knew that most of the guys on our team weren't going to wrestle collegiate. He said, this is the last time you'll ever wrestle. Six minutes more, that's all. How do you want to finish? You don't ever want to look back and think you could have tried harder, you could have given more. Leave it all on the mat tonight, everything you got. And I think we did, each wrestler. But why? Because of pride? As an attempt to avoid future regrets, as Coach Lamp said? No. It was simply because we loved that man. We wanted to offer it to him. And that was the last chance we would ever have to present him an offering from the mat. This life and the years you have left are your mat. How do you want to finish? Leave it all on the mat. Everything you got as an offering to him because soon... Very soon, you'll be with him in paradise. Let me pray. Father, give us a renewed and an expanded vision of paradise and an increased yearning to be there with you, with Christ, with your spirit, with hundreds, thousands of generations and palpable sense of its nearness that we might be there soon, maybe even very soon. Cultivate this in our heart, make it affect our lives in ways that are noticeable and maybe share it with others. We ask this in the name of the one who proclaimed those eight breathtakingly hopeful words. In Jesus' name, amen.